Good morning. <laughs> oh, this is too high. I gotta lower it. Okay. All right. Let's give our let's uh give it up for the Lord. Yeah. For He is good, and let's give it up for our uh, praise team too. They did an amazing job. It's good to be here. Um, it's an honor every time I come up here to, to preach the Word of God. I am, I am just so humbled uh, because I, I, I don't feel I deserve to stand up here and to give you uh, the Word. But the Lord calls me, not week after week, every other week. <laughs> and each time I do, I do with a humble heart. Um, so let's just go before the Lord in prayer and uh, let's give ourselves fully unto the Lord. God, uh, we thank you for this uh, day that you have given us, Lord, to come together, Lord, to hear your word, and by hearing your word, lifting our hearts up unto you and giving you praise. Lord Jesus, uh, there is nothing that we can offer but simply our hearts. And so, God, we just want to lay out our heart before you, trusting that you are good, that you do not condemn us, but that it is your desire to heal us and to restore us. So whatever, Lord, uh, we come into this sanctuary with, Lord, whether it may be grief, sorrow, brokenness, sinfulness, Lord, we lay it all before you, Trusting, Lord, that you are a God who redeems. And, Lord, that you are a God who desires to bring us to full reconciliation with you and with those that are around us. Lord, may there be less of me and may there be less of us, but more of you. Lord, may your presence increase. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, the title of today's sermon is Cry and Promises, not Crime and Punishment. <laughs> I'm trying to be a little creative with my sermon titles. <laughs> uh, Cry and Promises. In our scripture reading this morning, it comes from uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 17. I'll be reading from the ESV version, Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 17. Romans 8, 12 to 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with, witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we also be glorified with Him. In the verses leading up to verses 12 to 17, the passage that we just read, Paul, he takes us through an exhaustive list of the promises that we have in Christ Jesus. The promise that in Jesus, you and I, there is no condemnation for us. That in Jesus, we are free from the law of sin and death. That in Jesus, we've fulfilled every requirement that there is in the law. That in Jesus, we were empowered to set our mind on the things of God. And motivated to live a life that's pleasing to God. These are the promises that we have in Christ Jesus according to Romans chapter 8 verses 1 to 11. So a question I'd like to pose this morning is this. Are these promises evident in your faith journey? Are these promises evident in your faith journey. In other words, as a Christian, as a church-going person, does your, ref- does your life reflect these promises? I ask this question because it seems too often that we do feel condemned because of our habitual sinful nature. Right? For some of us, our lives are overwhelmed with guilt and with shame because of the dark secrets of our past that we carry around. Right? It seems too often that our minds are not set on the things of God, but the things of this world and the things of our flesh. It seems too often that we do fail to obey God's commands and live a life that's pleasing to Him as we swear time and time again never to do that one particular sin. Well, if that's you, I have good news for you this morning. As odd as it may sound, you're in a good place because it's only in that place of utter desperation, of feeling powerless, that the promises of Christ becomes a reality in our lives. Because the promises of Christ, it's, it isn't something that we do to attain, right? It doesn't happen by exerting our self-will, but it happens strictly through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I would like to talk to you about today. In our text this morning, Paul, he points a way, he points a path towards victory through the Holy Spirit. Before coming to West Covina, I pastored in a neighborhood called City Heights in San Diego. And this place is really, really, really diverse, this, this neighborhood, this community. L.A.'s diverse, right? L.A.'s diverse But the diversity here is somewhat compartmentalized city by city, right? If you go to San Gabriel, a bunch of Asians, right? If you go to East L.A., Latinos. If you go to uh, La Cunada, you get Koreans. But in City Heights, it's all types of people in this three-square-mile, right? On just one block, you'll find a row of Ethiopian shops followed by a row of Mexican supermarkets and taco shops then a plaza with Cambodian and Somali markets, and then just one block after that, an Italian restaurant. Right? This diversity, it's even represented in churches as one church 
one single church, a Methodist church, it displays sign, a sign in, uh, for worship services in Cambodian, in Vietnamese, in Spanish, in English, and Chinese. I kid you not. On the corner of 54th Street and El Cajon Boulevard, if you're in, ever in San Diego, you'll see this Methodist church with that sign. All right, this multicultural community, it has its roots back to the 1970s, back into the 90, 1970s. In 1975, after the Vietnam War, about 50,000 Vietnamese immigrants, refugees, they came to Camp Pendleton. They came to Camp Pendleton to find a better life in the United States. But these refugees who came, 50,000 of them, they were required after a short three months to leave Camp Pendleton, to leave the camp and become assimilated back into society, into United States society. And the majority of refugees who uh, decided to stay in the San Diego area, they resettled into, in this city called, in this neighborhood called City Heights, the City Heights neighborhood. So naturally, what happened was government services, religious institutions, community development organizations, and resettlement agencies, they popped up to help these influx of immigrants and refugees. And so soon after what happened, Burmese refugees began settling in City Heights. Ugandan refugees began settling there. Syrian refugees, Somali, Ethiopian, so on and so forth. And that is why it's diverse as it is today. City Heights, it adopted these refugees into their neighborhood, right? The United States adopted these families into the country, Adoption. When we think of the word adoption, it evokes words such as relief and acceptance and hope and opportunity and such. Right? But the thing about adoption is that it always happens in the context of some sad situation that's going on. Isn't that true? Behind the relief, behind the opportunity, behind the acceptance, there's tragedy, there's war, there's neglect, there's poverty. There's a sense of desperation and hopelessness. The adoption of the Vietnamese refugees to America during the 1970s happened in the backdrop of a country that was ravaged and devastated by war. Similarly, a woman who's been assaulted, she might decide she can't bear to look at her child, although she loves her child her child's face is a reminder of her assailant, and so to her, adoption is the only choice. Parents, they tragically die, and a young girl is left alone without parents and is forced into the foster care system, right? Or a young teenager might have parents who don't want to dishonor the family name and so urge their teenage daughter to put up her newborn child up for adoption. Or like the refugees in City Heights, because of poverty or economic plight, war, America was an opportunity for a better life. Adoption, it always takes place in the backdrop, in the context of some sad and unfortunate situation that's going on. And I think the same tone, it rings true with Paul's words from our passage today. In verses 15 and 16, he says, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship out of slavery and out of fear. 
You see, Paul's reminding the, Christian, the Christians in Rome of who they were, what they were adopted from, who they were adopted by, and the reality of who they are today. You see, Paul's letter, it was addressed to a group of Christians in Rome that was made up of both Gentiles and Jews, and it was a diverse church. It was a diverse church, a very, it was a multi-ethnic church, just like West Covina Christian Church. And the church, it was originally planted by Jewish Christians, but all the Jews, they got kicked out of Rome by the Roman Emperor Claudius, and for several years, the Roman church, it grew without the influence of the Jewish Christians. So when the Jews' ban got lifted and the Jewish Christians made their way back to Rome and back to their church, they realized that their Jewish traditions were no longer being practiced in the church. And so they started asking, what, what's going on? We planted this church. We started this church. Why aren't they upholding our dietary laws? Why aren't the men circumcised? Why are they doing this? Why don't they teach about Mosaic, the Mosaic laws? You see, the Jewish Christians, they began demanding to bring back their Jewish customs while the Gentile Christians, they demanded to worship according to their philosophical and cultural norms. And as these cultures collided... There was this infighting, this tension that was causing them to forget the core essence of the gospel, which is their adoption. Each of these groups, they were relying on their traditions, their positions of power, and their cultural heritage to live out their faith. They were relying on the things that they were once slaves to and the very things they were adopted from. To them, this church, both Jews and Gentiles, their religious activities, it, it seemed spiritual, okay? Their Jewish traditions, it, it felt spiritual. Circumcision seemed spiritual because it was a long practice, right? They, they practiced that for hundreds of years. Following the law of Moses seemed spiritual. The law was given directly by God to Moses. Engaging in philosophical debates, it seemed spiritual, Holding power in the church, it seemed spiritual. But these activities, these activities which appeared to be spiritual, were actually works of the flesh. The danger that the Roman church faced was that they were seeking to serve God in the power of their religious and cultural traditions rather than by the Spirit of God. They were attempting to live out the gospel as slaves rather, rather than as adopted children of God. I think the same danger lies within our own church today. The church in general. You see, preaching from the pulpit, it can seem spiritual. Being in leadership, it can seem spiritual. Serving in a ministry can seem spiritual. Sitting in a committee can seem spiritual. Going to church on a weekly basis can seem spiritual. Having theological depth can seem spiritual. But it's important to ask ourselves once in a while, what is the motivation we do these things? You know, these, these can simply be fleshly acts that we do to hold power, to grow a church in numbers, to uphold a certain culture. They can be fleshly, fleshly acts that we do 
to glorify the self and to drive the mission of self rather than die to the self all at the cost of living as slaves while, we're, while we think we're being spiritual. So Paul, he reminds the first century church and our church today of our adoption. How we've been adopted by the Spirit of God. That God didn't adopt us as a result of any work on our part or obedience to the law or because of our religious traditions. But God adopted us through the Holy Spirit while we were dead in our sins. Period. Dead in our sins. So since we came to be children of God through the Holy Spirit, victory in our lives can only be found through the Holy Spirit. Driving the mission of God can only be found, be, be experienced through the Holy Spirit. The promises of Christ can only be experienced through the Holy Spirit. So Paul's demanding that we're not obligated to the flesh to all these things that we once thought were so important. He's saying you owe the flesh nothing. You owe the Spirit everything. Live your life according to the Holy Spirit. Drive the mission of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. Pursue holiness and do church by the Holy Spirit. Something we need to understand is that Paul's mentioning of flesh is not referring to the literal flesh that that we have around our bones. Okay, he's talking about something deeper. The flesh he speaks of is the carnal nature within each one of us that we all have. The nature within us that yearns to sin. It's our compulsion to commit sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, quarreling, envy, drunkenness, orgies, as Paul lists out in Galatians 5. You see, the flesh exists in the inner being of every person in here, in you and me, and the flesh is the will to rebel against God. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about the flesh. The flesh, it feeds on appetites that are essentially good things. It feeds on appetites that are good things because anger is good, right? Sex is good, food is good, circumcision is good, laws of Moses is good, serving in ministry is good, career advancement is good, money is good. These are all good and desirable things. God, he designed anger. He gave us that emotional capacity so that when an injustice is done, we give voice to that. Right, Jesus, he gave voice to that when he saw what the religious leaders were doing with the temple. How they turned a house of prayer into a den of thieves. God, he designed these natural appetites and he gave us the capacity to enjoy and steward it. But the flesh, what it does is it takes these natural appetites and it perverts it so that it serves us. It's no longer a means to fulfill God's purpose of enjoying Him and glorifying His name, but rather a means to glorify oneself. Money's no longer a means to serve others just as God purposed, but a means to lord over others. Power is no longer a means to empower others, but a means to exploit for selfish gain. 
right? Career is no longer a means to live out one's authentic self, but a means to find identity. How many of us do that, especially the guys? Ministry is no longer a means to glorify God, but an idol to give us a sense of purpose. You see, the moment that your sexual appetite drives you, your anger drives you, your desire for money drives you, your children drives you, what you eat and drink drives you, you're living a life obligated to the flesh. And here's the thing, at times you might even convince yourselves that the fleshly acts that you commit are spiritual acts. Just as was the case for the Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome. A life obligated to the flesh, it can be lived out in both the Christian and non-Christian. Because the motivation is the same. The heart issue is the same. It's to serve oneself. Because think of it this way. An addict who desperately wants to feed his addiction and get his next fix of heroin is just the same as a church leader who so desperately wants to get his next fix of recognition and praise. The hard issue is to serve oneself. A non-believer who votes for discriminatory policies is just the same as a churchgoer who's unwilling to adapt to change in order to keep certain types of people out of the church. So in this commonality lies our utter dependence. In this reality lies our utter desperation. Right, we're all one and the same. The religious and non-religious. The Christian and non-Christian. Except in just one little thing. It's that you and I were adopted. And as such, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Hui's a Vietnamese, his name's Hui. Okay? Um, I don't want you guys to confuse it with some, some other word. Hui's a Vietnamese immigrant, and he's been living in the States for about seven years. And while, he was in, while I was in San Diego, him and I, we met together for discipleship. And every week he came into my office with an excitement to learn something new about God. He was a new believer. But almost every single time he came to my office, in front of his excitement was a look of concern. He'd say, Pastor Stephen, what, what am I going to do about my sin? Right? And I'd answer, what, what sin? A sin I committed when I was seven years old. For some reason, I'm, re I'm reminded of it over and over again. So I'd take him to the Bible, and we'd both be reminded as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your sins. Then we'd go about our usual thing and he would leave reassured. The following week, Hui would come to my office. Pastor Stephen, I don't feel like a Christian. I keep messing up. So I'd ask him, all right, tell me about it. Thought about someone in a way I shouldn't have. I don't feel like a Christian. So we'd look at the Bible and we'd both be reminded... God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So again, he'd leave reassured and confident in his standing with God. And the following week, Pastor Stephen, I feel weak. I keep focusing on the negative things in my life. I feel like everything in my, in my life is going to turn out horrible. And again, and again, we'd go to scripture and be reminded to cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you 
Week after week, Hui came to me with these concerns, these concerns about his sins, these voices that try to condemn him, these concerns of whether his life is truly pleasing to God. But church, if I'm to be honest with you, if I'm to be honest with you this morning, do you know what I'm thinking during those conversations that I had with Hui? I'm thinking, so do I, Hui. I also don't feel like a Christian at times. I also think about others in a way I shouldn't. I also keep on focusing on the negative things in my life. I also mess up over and over and over again the same sin I promised to do away with. Week after week, as Hui and I had our time, and he shared his concerns, I saw someone who's living a life obligated to the Spirit. He embraced the fact that when he accepted Christ, his fleshly desires weren't just going to disappear. He embraced the reality that when he gave his life to God, the devil was going to mark him and do everything to lure him back to slavery. Which is why he came to my office week after week. To become equipped with the things of the spirit because he knew he can't rely on the things of the flesh to defeat this enemy and to live an adopted life. You see, I saw him, I saw we, by the spirit, commanding the word of God against every temptation that came to him as we opened up the Bible. I saw him by the Spirit wield the word of God against a voice that condemns him. I saw him by the Spirit strike the head of shame with his prayers. And every week I saw Hui taking off his shackles, the shackles of lives that, lies that once enslaved him. The lies that enslaved him. The shackles of condemnation and shame and fear. And I saw the spirit of sonship within him growing his confidence in his adoption as he leaned into the spirit of God. You see, the devil isn't going to stop. The devil isn't going to stop once the spirit comes to us. He isn't going to stop questioning, are you sure this is for you? Don't you remember what you did? He's going to continue whispering, go back to your slave ways. It's easier that way. See, some of us in here, we've done some horrible things, right, that we can't, just can't escape the tormenting voice of shame from. Some of you might have broken up families. Some of you might have destroyed your own family. Some of you might have cheated your way up the corporate ladder. Some of you might have murdered someone, either physically or with your words. Some of you might have done something just this past week that you awfully regret, where you feel the weight of shame in the pit of your stomach. And so that tormenting voice, it says to you, I know what you did. This isn't for you. You need to pay for what you did. You deserve death. And it's true. It is true. What the devil hurls at us is true. We do need to pay for it. We do deserve condemnation. We are worthy of death. But the only difference between a Christian and a non-believer is that we have a response to his lies and accusations. And it's not with the flesh. 
It's not with the flesh of good works or exerting your will or making up for the wrong you did or doing religious activities. It's with the Spirit of God that dwells within you. We respond to that voice of the devil saying, yes, it is true. I deserve to be condemned. I deserve to be enslaved. I deserve death. I deserve all these things. But you see, I've already confronted death through Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, I was brought to trial for my sins. I was chained up, whipped, and condemned to death. And upon the mountain of skull, I took my cross and I was crucified to a wooden beam. Upon the flesh of Christ, my sins were nailed. And I died. But on the third day, the Spirit of God to which I'm obligated raised me from the dead. So it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. This life I live in the body, I live by faith. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then you slap the devil. Make him run away. You see, the spirit of God is not a spirit of slavery. It's not a spirit of fear. The devil, he says to us, try harder. You're not good enough. You'll never get it right. This isn't for you. But that isn't what God says to his children. That's not what God says to his children. He gives us a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, and he says to you, let me feed you. He says to you, let me care for you. He says to you, let me carry that burden with you. Let me get it done for you. That is the voice of a father. That is the heart of a father. So we throw ourselves at God crying, Abba, Father. And this results in a genuine fearlessness. In freedom. In the context of our adopted life. It's essential that we cry out, Abba, Father. That we cry out, Daddy, help me do what I can't. Daddy, Abba, do in my flesh only that which you can do. Daddy, help me to surrender in my life. We throw ourselves in full dependence upon the Father because we know we are hopeless without the help of the Spirit. When we receive the Spirit of adoption, it produces a cry of Abba, Father that comes from the inside out. And the Spirit of God, it wells up, wells up from within the pit of your stomach and it comes forth. And you know what it does? It meets your needs and takes away all of your fears. It's a life-changing work of the Holy Spirit producing an authentic cry to Abba. Cry out. Get into this rhythm of crying out, Abba, Father, every time you're confronted with the lure to go back to slavery and see the transforming work of the Holy Spirit sanctify your life. A couple years ago, I saw a movie called Room. If you're under 17, don't watch it. If you're over 17, watch it. And uh, in this movie... There's a woman named Joy, and she's kidnapped at the age of 17, and she's held in captivity for seven years in a backyard shed. 
And two years into her captivity, her kidnapper impregnates her, and she gives birth to her son, Jack. To Jack. Her and her son, they share a bed, they share a toilet, a television, a kitchen, and the only window light into that room is a skylight. They call their living space room. Room. And room, it can't be larger than 10 by 15. But this is Jack's world. This is her son's world. This is the world that he was born into. He doesn't know anything about the outside world. And so for the sake of Jack's sanity, his mom, Joy, convinces him to believe that the household items are real and the rest of the world exists only on television. It's fake, whatever he sees on television. And they live like this for several years until they escape. And Joy's reunited with her family and she returns to her childhood home. But her son, Jack, he struggles to adjust to life in the world he never knew existed outside of room. And Jack's overstimulated. He doesn't know what to do with his freedom. Everything he thought only existed in the TV box is now real. It's mind-blowing to him. And he's frightened with this new reality and freedom. And so Jack, he pleads with his mom over and over that he wants to go back to room. Back to the 10 by 15 room. He wants to return because he thinks that's what's safe. He thinks that's what will give him security. He thinks that's what will bring him fulfillment. And that's how it is for us at times, isn't it? For some of us, we want to go back to room. We want to revert back to the slave way of life because it's the only world we knew for so long. We want to go back to the darkened room that's so familiar to us, where we think it's safe, where we believe it'll give us the satisfaction that we're craving. We want to live apart from the work of Christ because we believe it's easier that way because then we're in control, or at least we think we are. So God says to us this morning, He says to you and me, Since you are adopted children of God, put to death the misdeeds of the body by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, since you are adopted, since you are my children, since you are free, be led by the Spirit of God and not according to the flesh that leads you back to slavery. God says to us this morning, since you are adopted, since you are my daughter, my son, Live under the lordship of God that gives you power and grace and freedom. Since you're adopted children of God, cry out to me and enjoy your Abba Father and the free and new life that I give you. So in faith, we cry out, Abba Father. It takes faith, church. To cry out, Abba, Father. It does. It does take faith. Because in our turmoil, in our grief, in our desperation, isn't it comfortable just being there? But God, He has a 
a new way for us, a way towards freedom. And all we must do is cry out his name, Abba, Father, and see what the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit does to your life. Bow with me as I pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you give us the Holy Spirit, Lord, so that we may have the fullness of life. We thank you that by the, Holy, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to live a life obligated not to the flesh, but a life obligated to you. Lord, you know and you see what we harbor and what we carry in our heart. Help us, Lord, to cry out to you, Abba, Father, not just in our heart, but with our lips and with our words and with our mouth. Help us to cry out to you, Abba, Father, trusting, Lord, that as we do, your Holy Spirit will overwhelm us and consume us and give us the power that we need to live a life in freedom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.